Nehemiah chapter 9, um, we're in the middle of one of the longest recorded prayers uh, in, the, in the whole Bible. Uh, Ezra has already read the word of God uh, for six hours at a time. And that's, that's had an amazing effect on the people. Uh, just like God's word always has an amazing effect on God's people. Because it is powerful. It's, it's, Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. We know that, it, that his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces through bone and marrow and judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so that this word of God has been read by Ezra and also others assisted him in teaching the people. And there's been an incredible work of the Holy Spirit that's happened among them. Really a, a revival, a personal revival in the hearts of the people. The people having their hearts directed back to back to, uh, to God. And so then we've seen these Levites begin this prayer. We saw it began, we, it began back in verse 5, and uh, they're just basically rehearsing God's faithfulness. And they're basically talking about their history and how God has been so incredibly faithful. They use the word give or gave 16 times during this prayer. It's a, it's, a, it's a really a prayer about God's faithfulness of giving. That's why it was interesting that we started it last week, the week of Thanksgiving, and now we're finishing it uh, in, at the end of the week of Thanksgiving. And it's neat because it is true that God gives and gives. He just, he, no one can outgive God. He's just a giver. He's just, he's just loves to do it. He has such a great heart. As you get to know him more, you start wanting to give more. You're starting to, to want to be other-centered, to be doing what's best for other people, even at your own expense. That's the true definition of agape love, doing what's best for others, even at our own expense. We did see some specific words as we began this prayer last week that demonstrated a dynamic relationship between the children of Israel and their God. And it was words like, but, therefore, yet, nevertheless, moreover. And as you look at why they said those words, you can see that those words represent grace in just how God was dealing with the children of Israel. Because they talk about, we did this, there, and then, yet you did this, and, and moreover, you were faithful to do this, and, and though we did this, yet you did this, and therefore, you know, just like this dynamic relationship of, of interaction. And that's what God has designed salvation for, is to have a personal relationship with him. We're so wired in our flesh and our sinful nature to want to be engaged in, in religion, in man-made religion, where we're all about rituals, and we're all about doing certain things to get God to do certain things, and that we initiate things and then he responds. And we're, we're told from Scripture that God's the initiator, and we're the responders. He's the one that's done it all. He's the one that has sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. And so the rest of our lives after we receive that free gift is a response to what he's already done for us. Not wanting to do things for him to get heaven, but doing things because we already have heaven, because we've already crossed over from death to life, that we have received salvation as a free gift. And because of that, we want to bless his heart in response to that. So they, they have just gone over this. We've seen all the way through verse um, you know, 21 
there, he talked about, uh, and he mentioned and re- revealed this when he wrote this down, that they were reviewing uh, the history that, of God's faithfulness, and they included the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where they were receiving God's faithfulness and sustenance through manna, through 4,500 tons of manna a day coming down, uh, twice that, uh, you know, before the Sabbath and all of that. And that was just an expression of God's faithfulness to, to them. But yet there are times where they didn't follow him anymore and they serve false gods and all of that. And then he disciplines them and then he comes back after they repent and he continues to be faithful to them. It's just a pattern that we see. It's cyclical all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. Sometimes we can criticize the Jews and and when we read through the Old Testament, they're like, they're just not faithful. They just serve other gods and then they get disciplined by God and then they repent and then God takes them back and then he shows himself strong on their behalf and then they serve him for a while and then they turn back and, and then before you get too much pride in your heart, you realize, hey, that's us, that's me. That's kind of the Christian life. And it's, it's modeled for us in the Old Testament. There's not a different God of the Old Testament than the New Testament. He was gracious then and, and long-suffering and patient and in the New Testament, he's not afraid to take out Ananias and Sapphira. You know, there are times where the ground opened up and he swallowed people because of their pride. I mean, he, he can act decisively and he can be, you know, that sovereign God that, that we should rightfully fear in the New Testament as well. He also uh, demonstrated his faithfulness to them by that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and all of that. And their clothes and their sandals didn't wear out, not even their feet would swell. I mean, that's just incredible that he would be able to do that. And and remember, they were in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their unbelief. It was completely unnecessary. They didn't have to be there. They could have had faith in him related to them uh, being able to take the land and all of that. He said, I will give you the land. And they were looking at the outward, you know, kind of the circumstances and they believed the the bad report and so forth, and 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 because of that, they were. They, he said, I'm, "You're not. You're not going over a certain age. You're not going to see the, this promised land." Even Moses made a mistake and couldn't actually lead the people there. God was gracious to let him see it from a, from a high place, but didn't let him go in until uh, the Mount of Transfiguration when he was there with Jesus. So, incredible time of God's. Uh, favor and and grace and they're just worshiping the Lord remembering his faithfulness to them through their history and everything he continues in verse 22 look with me there moreover you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts so they took possession of the land of Sihon the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og king of Bashan you also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you told their fathers to go in and possess. So God told them to go in and possess the land. He didn't. A lot of times God tells us to do things that are impossible. He loves to do that. I don't know if you notice that for your life, but he'll tell us to do things that are impossible and he wants us to trust him to take care of all the details. That's what faith is. But sometimes we have our eyes on the circumstances and how difficult or impossible it seems, and we don't move forward when he says, trust me, I'll take care of it, but I want you to be a moving vessel of faith instead of um, a stagnant vessel of, of, of fear. Really, that's what it, 
it is. So he's talking about how faithful that God was to these to to them in this and all of that and multiplied their children and all of that and brought them to the land and and verse 24 says so the people went in and possessed the land you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land so the children of Israel didn't do that God went in before them and subdued the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat. Should I elaborate? Um, You know, move on. And delighted themselves in your great goodness. I mean, there's not, that's not a biblical justification for fat. It's just talking about God's faithfulness and everything. Delight themselves in your great goodness. So they, basically he's saying here, you were so faithful that you caused us to, to enjoy things that didn't originate from us. And God does that for us all the time. He, he sets us up, doesn't he, with circumstances where he provides a divine appointment for us. And he calls us just to walk in that and be faithful to open our mouths and preach the gospel. Sometimes it's just as simple as uh, Jesus saves. Oh, really? I want, to, I want to receive, right? What do I do to be saved? And they're practically hitting their knees right there. We, I mean, he's already worked on, on our behalf. He's convicted them. He's drawn them to himself. He's planted seed already. And we just come in and just say the littlest of things. And then they, get, they come to know Christ and they grow and all of that. And then he's going to give us rewards for those things. But it's just like him to do that because he's good and he's great. He could have had them do all those things that he mentions there, but he, he does it, he did it for them. And, and, and so often the promised land, a lot of old hymns talk about the promised land being heaven. But when you really study the scripture, you see the promised land in terms of in the New Testament and what that means for us is talking about the abundant life that God's called us to live. And each one of the promises of God that we lay hold of and claim and believe and stand on is just like Joshua and them coming in and defeating a city. And, 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 faith, and unbelief and fear and all those things could get in the way of claiming a promise of God just as much as any of those cities ever could be in the way of or not be able to be conquered because of unbelief as well with Joshua and all of them when they came in to the land. God's called us to claim the land, to claim the abundant life that he's called us to live. And that requires us to have faith because we don't see how it could happen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in scriptures, he doesn't really lay it out for people how he's going to do something before he tells them to go and do it. He just says to go and do it. He'll take care of all of that. And we get all upset because we want to have it all laid out in front of us. We like to live by sight and call it living by faith, but it's really not. It's really living by sight when we're living by sight. But we, know, we say, well, we want, the, we want our Christian walk to be so adventurous and all of that, but yet when he puts us in impossible situations, we, it's not comfortable for us because we can't, we can't see how he's going to do it. But then when we see him come through, and we see him do what only he can do. We see the glory of God. We're so thankful and it's so easy to look back and go, man, that was so great. But during that time of being stretched and being put in an impossible situation, we're not all that happy about it at the time. 
I don't, I can say from experience myself, anything that I've, he's used me to do or whatever wasn't usually fun at the time, but afterwards I'm, I'm totally enjoying what he did, but it still requires a step of faith and obedience to him in doing the impossible. I want to talk about, about him taking over these people because this is a objection in our culture that our God is not a fair God, a loving God, a merciful God. How dare he allow or lead the, the Israelites to come into that land that wasn't theirs and take it and what business did they have taking that land? It wasn't theirs. Didn't he love those people that they conquered? And one of the things we have to recognize is that, especially as you read in Genesis 15, you read in other places in the Old Testament, these people that they were going into were, were wicked. And they were sacrificing their children in these horrible or horrific um, rituals to, to serve false gods, where they would, have, they would heat up the statue, Molech, they would heat up the statue and they'd have arms out that was red hot and they'd put their babies right in the arms of that and let their babies die. And they were sacrificing to Molech and other false gods. And so they, he warned them, he gave them plenty of time, but they, they chose to not turn. And, and, and so he, that I mean, may seem difficult to understand how God could be merciful in letting a people be conquered, but it, he was merciful in that. And so don't let that objection come up and let it stand because people that are saying these things are ignorant of the scriptures. The God's, God has a reaping and a sowing situ, you know, kind of law that's set up. And if you, if you sow in, in, in iniquity, you're going to reap. And, and, and God is not going to be mocked. So that's clear all through the, the scriptures. Verse 26. Nevertheless, there's one of our uh, words. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. God will send messengers to us when we're disobedient. I don't know if you ever noticed that where God is very faithful to bring another believer that comes in and, and warns us. And he warned the children of Israel. Notice in the middle of verse 26, it says his motivation was to turn them to yourself. That's why he sent those prophets. He didn't send those prophets to hurt them. He didn't send them to do damage against to, to them. He did it to, to turn them to back to God. And that's what, that's, that's what God wanted the whole time. He wanted their hearts. And they were not being faithful to him. They were being adulterers. They were being, uh, you know, he, re- he, he likens them and compares them to, to, to being prostitutes at one point in the Old Testament. They weren't being faithful whatsoever. So he sent his prophets to them to tell them the truth. And sometimes when we're in willful disobedience, God will send somebody to tell us the truth. And we have to be willing to receive that exhortation, to be willing to be corrected or whatever. And usually, we're, we know what's happening because the Holy Spirit's faithful to convict us. We can sense that he's grieved in us. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. And we just try to shut his voice out. It's kind of hard because he lives inside of us. And then he just keeps sending people, sending people to tell us the truth. Or he'll speak through anything to tell us because he loves us and he wants us to turn back to himself. Verse 27. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies, who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, 
you heard from heaven. So they, when they all cried out to God, he heard them. Every single time. There wasn't a time where they cried out and, and they wanted help and they wanted to repent and all of that, and he didn't hear. Aren't you glad that God is patient? He tells us to forgive you know, 70 times 7, I mean, basically unending. And we know that if he's telling us to do that, then he's that way as well. So he will hear from heaven. And it says, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. All they needed to do is turn back to him. I said this a few weeks ago that the biggest threat to God's people has never been the threats that come from without. Whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament or us today, the biggest threat is the enemy within. Within the church, within our own selves, our own sinful nature, that's where the biggest threat uh, comes. And as long as we stay faithful and true to him, nothing on the outside can conquer us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors in him. So he can, they continue to review God's faithfulness. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the, in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times, notice it says many times, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks and would not hear. So just a picture of stubbornness. I know you can't relate. I can't either. We don't even know what it's like to be stubborn and stiff-necked and all that. They shrugged their shoulders like, meh. I don't have to obey that. You know, what's, and it's just a picture of the Christian life. It really is because we're in disobedience to God and God's trying to get through to us through his word, through other people, through teachings, through worship songs, through, I mean, he could, any means that he wants, he can speak to us and we can just harden our heart. Don't harden your heart. Maybe you're here today and you're hardening your heart and it's getting stronger and stronger and more and more hard. You're getting in a dangerous position. You don't want to harden your heart. It just gets worse and worse and worse. You want your, all of our hearts, we want our hearts to be soft and pliable. Where when we get off track, he speaks to us, we hear him, and we immediately repent and get back on track. Sometimes we think, oh, the holier I get, the less repenting I'm going to have to do. How many of us know that's not true? The holier that you get, the more repenting you're doing. Because the closer you get to God, the more you see how amazing he is and the distance is growing between you and him and it's related to holiness. Not getting closer, even though you are getting holier, you're getting a better view of perfection. And because you get a better view of perfection, you see more imperfections in you. And so we repent more. So expect as you grow in your walk with the Lord, expect repentance to increase. And maybe if you haven't seen that in a while, you haven't seen repentance come from your life and it's decreasing, that's a sign to you you're not going the right direction. It's a sign to you perhaps that you're going the wrong direction, that you're not growing, that you're actually going backwards. And so we have to be careful of that because we don't want to shrug our shoulders or stiffen our necks and not hear from him. 
Verse 30, there's our word again. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. I still, it still amazes me when people say there's a different God in the Old Testament, or he deals with us differently than he does the New Testament. All through the scriptures, we see him be described as faithful and merciful and patient and loving. He doesn't change, and he doesn't show favoritism. And we're told in the New Testament to be very careful about thinking that he somehow has a different set of rules for people in the church than he does outside the church related to his, his desire for us to be right with him. And, and he will discipline us. We have to be careful. Don't resist his discipline if you're getting off track. It's an expression of his love. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, if he didn't discipline you, you'd be illegitimate. What, what faithful father doesn't discipline their sons? So we have to recognize that discipline is good. We should embrace that discipline. It's not punitive. It's not, there's no desire behind him to hurt us, to cause harm. It's always corrective. It's always in, in, a, in a way to make us better, to have us grow. It's never, ever with an intent to hurt us or make us worse off. It's always to make us better. And so it's, it's a, God's always been that way. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. He keeps covenant and mercy. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. You need mercy. You need him to, you need to be reminded about the covenant that he's made with you. We're going to get to that a little bit more in a moment. But it's a beautiful thing, the fact that he keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. See, all of the, the old covenant, and there's many covenants in the Old Testament, but the main one that we think about is related to the law and all of that and the, the, the purpose of the Jewish law, the law of Moses and all of that. And it was conditional. And it was between man and, and, and God. And if you do these things, you will live. And if you don't do these things, you know, there's curses associated with that and everything. But the new covenant's entirely different because it's not based on anything with us. He removed us out of that. The covenant is between really the son and the father and it's totally one-sided and it's based on his faithfulness so that's why in the new testament it calls the new covenant a better covenant in the old test i mean in the new testament it refers in the book of hebrews it refers to the new covenant as a better covenant because it's based on god's faithfulness not ours isn't that good news the fact that it's based on his faithfulness i would i love that i would hate to have anything based on my faithfulness that's for sure Verse 33, however, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Isn't that true for us as well? You know, like everything that they've gone through, remember, this is after, this is in, um, um, what year did I say it was? 
It's like 445 B.C. So in 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes of Israel were conquered by Assyria. Then in 602 to 586, three different campaigns, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the, the, the two southern kingdoms and carried them away to Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. Now they've been brought back. And they've been in the land a little bit. And here he's saying, you have been just. And all that's befallen us, everything that's happened to us, you've been completely just and you have dealt with us faithfully, but we have done wickedly. And that's just, that's just part of confession related to our walk with Christ. To be honest, I said, I think it was last week, that when you confess your sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, it means to say the same thing as. It has at its heart agreement. You're verbally saying and agreeing with God about what he says about your condition or your sin problem or whatever it is. That's what confession means. It's to agree. And that's what this, I mean, you can't get any better picture than in verse 33. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Verse 34. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law. Wow. Nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its, and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the king's you have set over us. Therefore, of our sins, also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So they were still under bondage there. They were just in their land. And he's saying, we are servants. It's not, he's not saying that as, as, a, as good news, like, a, 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 like not a result of being disciplined by God. It's, it's a result of that. Even though they're in their own land and all of that, they still are serving. Uh, and um, they're not going to be completely free for a, a couple centuries. And then, then after that, Rome's going to take over. So they weren't free there for very, very long. But, but they're basically saying, we're going to do right before you, God. We're going to do the right thing. We recognize that how we've been disciplined is our fault. You have done nothing but deal with this appropriately. You've been just in all that has befallen us. But we want to make a covenant with you or we want to be right with you and do the right thing no matter what happens in our future, no matter who is overseeing us, no matter what situation in which we find ourselves, we are going to make a sure covenant. We're going to write it out. Look at verse 38 and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. See, when, gen- when repentance is genuine, you're willing to make that commitment. And you're willing to get specific. When you write things down, you're being specific. And, and they're, they're saying, we are going to keep this, this covenant. And we're, we're willing to, to, to sign our, our name to this. Now, chapter 10 is going to be them signing it. And there's three things that he's going to talk about in chapter 10. He's going to talk about their willingness to be in submission to his word. They're going to talk about their separation from those that are not following God. And then thirdly, they're going to talk about supporting his work uh, in providing for it. 
So that's what he's going to talk about. But he, we're not going to go through all of, of chapter 10. Because we're not going to read all these names. I do want to mention that in the beginning in verse 1, it says, Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor. And then he gets to the priests there. It begins with the names of the priests, the Zedekiah and so forth. And he goes down mentioning all of those. And then he talks about the Levites in verse 9. So the Levites, those were their names and all of that. Verse 14 says, the leaders of the people. And I'm glad he didn't mention all their names. Or this would be a lot longer of a, of, of a text for sure. And then look at verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. So those, these are the people that are separating themselves. Now, he lists all those names. It's not unimportant that he lists those names. Just because we didn't read them doesn't mean there isn't a purpose for it. The purpose is they're serious and they want to put their names down as, as those that are saying, we make this covenant with you to obey you, to stay on track now. We were off track. You've disciplined us. You were just in doing that. But we are now going to be true to you, and we want to make this covenant, put our names down. That's how serious we are to that. When we make a commitment to the Lord, it's, he takes it very seriously. And when we make those commitments, he's looking at our hearts, and he's looking at how we live after we make those commitments to him. And it matters to him how we fulfill those things and how we follow through with our commitments. People make a lot of commitments in this life. And the ones that you can trust, that you have a track record with, that you know when they say they're going to do something, they follow through. Those people are gold for us in our relationships. And so he's, they're saying, you can trust us. We're going to put our names down and all of that. And notice he says that in the middle of verse 28, they had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. See, when you separate yourself you don't just sit, you're not pulling away from something and not coming to something at the same time. You're going, you're going away from something, but to something else. And, and that's what they do. They're going away from these people that are bad influences on them, and they're going to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all. Notice the word all there. All the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes so they separate themselves to God you know someone has talked about this and I really enjoyed when I heard him first teach this that when you first fall in love you just can't see anybody but that person you're just everywhere I mean the guys start showering all of a sudden you know and they start like taking care of themselves and paying attention to their hair and you know they're just on a they're like floating into a room you know just in love you know and the and the girls the same way and 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 they're not really focusing on ignoring others but they're just so enthralled with each other they don't pay attention to the people anymore just because they're focused so much on each other. And it's a great picture for us as we fall in love with the Lord and as we separate ourselves to him. It should be an overflow of our love for him and, and our desire to be with him. And it's not like we're consciously putting our attention away from others, but we're so enthralled with him that we just spend our time with him and just want to be with him all the time. It's a beautiful picture of a love relationship with God. See, if you've been involved in man-made religion, 
you're used to having a legal relationship with God. And, and no one, God doesn't want us to have a legal relationship with him. He wants to have a love relationship with him. And sometimes it takes a while after coming to know Christ how to have a love relationship with anybody. Maybe we've had a background where we haven't really been able to have a love relationship with someone. That wasn't modeled for us growing up or whatever. And it takes time for us to understand how God wants us to have a love relationship with him. What's our motivation for everything that we do for him and because of him? It's because of the love that we have for him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. So we think, i got to obey his commandments to love him, and that's true in a sense. But he says, the heart should be the initiator of that. And then you obey me because, because I, you, know, you love me. And it's, it's beautiful when, when it happens the way that God has intended it. But he also talks about walking according to your law there. He says, walking according to your law. That's the standard. And then he says, observe and do all the commandments. And then notice at the end of verse 29, he also includes these things called ordinances and statutes. Well, now, what's that? What are those things? I mean, the law is the law. Well, the, the ordinances are, it's like their decision-making. Because the leaders were called to make decisions. They would be at the gate of the city, and they would make decisions, judicious decisions. They would... They would adjudicate certain things that were going on and they would make the final call related to what, what people were having conflict over there. And they said, we submit to, to that as well. But also the statutes. And those, that's the ritual obligations that they had, the ceremonial law of the law of Moses where they had to be cleansed and they had to, you know, they had to obey those things to be able to approach God in, in a way that God had prescribed. Hold your place here and please turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Because I want to put this in the kind of put this in a New Testament way of of saying it. Colossians chapter 3. We're talking about obedience to his word. We're talking about living for him and not for ourselves. We're talking about putting him first. We're talking about not living according to the flesh. That's what all this is talking about, that they've been, that they've been um, basically expressing to God that they want to do in this, in this covenant of obedience. Colossians chapter 3, I want to begin reading in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, and that's really since, okay, that's the idea of that. Since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. That just needs to wash over us here as Americans, as people that live in a very prosperous country. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you died. Really? I didn't know I died. That's news. Yeah, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy, that's separate, when we're talking about being separate, holy and beloved, beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, which means power under control. Meekness means power under control. Long-suffering, bearing with one another. What do you mean bearing with one another? I, in the church, I'm never going to experience somebody that needs to be to, to bear you know, them up or, or to be patient with them. Wrong. We all have sinful natures. We're all going to we're going to have to bear bear with one another. It says that. And forgiving one another. Wait a minute. He calls himself a Christian. What, what, he can't do anything against me. I have to forgive him. No, that's not true. This is this is how a functional family works. People do and say things. We still retain a sinful nature when we come to know Christ. So we still are going to fall short, and we have to be gracious and forgiving toward one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, here we've been talking about God's word, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You can turn back to Nehemiah. That's what it looks like putting off the old man, putting on the new man, and having God's word richly dwell in us. That's why as we appropriate God's word, as we receive it, as we let it do its work in us, as we respond appropriately and repent when he shows us things, there's a lot that we've read already, just with even apart from Colossians, that have been very convicting. I'm not the only one here being convicted, am I? I hope not. We, we have to, that's, this is the standard. This is, this is God's word here. It's not just that I agree with these things. It's what are these things, are they in my life? Are they dominating my life? Are things going on in my life that don't please him and, and all these things? I need to repent of those things. I need to have the same response that these Israelites did with repenting and saying to God, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to follow what you say to do. And I'm going to call upon you for grace and power when I'm feeling weak and I'm tempted to do these things. I'm going to ask you for strength, knowing that he's going to give it to us. And he'll, he will. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9, let's look at verse, or actually we're in verse uh, chapter 10, um, verse 30. Who would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Now, this isn't a racial thing. The temptation might be to like see this as a racial thing, and it's not a racial thing at all. It's a spiritual thing. It's, a, it's what gods they served and how those gods affected them. And you know, as, We're not supposed to marry people that are not believers. 
That's clear from Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with un- together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. This is just what the Israelites are talking about. Being separate. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So God knew that if they married people that were serving other gods that they would fall into idolatry. And it was a protection. It wasn't that he thought that those people were, you know, that they didn't have any value as spouses in and of themselves. It has to do with the gods that they were serving and how that would uh, go against their faith and all of that. Verse 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So they were to keep the Sabbath, and and they didn't. That's one of the reasons why they were allowed to be taken away into Babylon, because they wouldn't rest the land. Every seventh year, they were supposed to rest the land. Now, who wouldn't want to take a year off? God would produce twice as much crops the, the year before they were supposed to rest, in year six. Twice as much that they were to gather, and then they were supposed to take a year off and rest that land, and they didn't do it. And so God was going to get those, those uh, back, and he did, because they were 70 years in the wilderness. It was 70 of those Sabbath years that they, that they disobeyed God, and, and so the, they're just confessing this. This is what we did, and, and all of that, and, and you were totally justified in how you disciplined us. Now, in verse 32, he's going to start to express their desire to take care of the house of God. And in verses 32 through 39, he says the house of God nine times. So he's talking about the house of God, taking care of it. That was the third thing I said he was going to cover in chapter 10. Verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves nearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So they we're supposed to bring all these things in. They're supposed to do all these offerings at the appointed time and all of that. And then he continues, And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and the, our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, 
the new wine and the oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. So God set it up so that they would bring the first fruits. He wanted the first of their crops. He didn't want the leftovers. He wanted the first of their, of their animals. No spot or blemish. It was all pointing to Christ, how he wouldn't have spot or blemish and all that. But it was a sacrifice because it was a sacrifice. I mean, it was sacrificial to give something like that. But that's how God set it up. He set it up back then. He set it up today that way for us to fund the kingdom of God through our giving. And God is, you know, I'm not, I don't apologize for bringing it up or talking about it because it's, it's how God has set it up. But he's also done it in part for us to continue to have the kingdom of God at the forefront of our mind and our hearts where we're sowing into eternity instead of just sowing into this life and all of that. It's good for all of us. Verse 38. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offerings of the grain, of the new wine, and, of the, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Very important. They were being faithful. They were being faithful what God has called them to do with, with giving a portion of, of what God had blessed them with because everything belongs to God. Not just our giving and then we get to decide whatever we want to do with the rest of our money. It's all his money. It's a stewardship. It's a thing that we manage for him. It's all his and he wants us to be spirit directed related to that and be faithful according to that because he knows that the kingdom of God, he set it up for us to be a part of what he's doing. He didn't have to do that. I mean, he, he could just have things funded automatically. He, didn't, he, doesn't let us, he doesn't have to let us be a part of those things, but he's called us to, to do that, and it's important that we follow through with that. So let's stop there this morning. Um, amazing, just going through all these chapters, just their heart being expressed of thankfulness, and it all started with them committing their lives to the Lord with related to the law of the Lord being read and all of that. And then they respond and want to make this covenant with God and, and want to be serious about obeying. The true measure of mature, spiritual maturity is the fruit of the Spirit, but also it's obedience to God. And it's so funny how we can do this thing in our minds where we think, if I agree with it, then I'm okay. But many times we're not, we agree with it, but we're not living up to that. And God calls us to live up to the things in, in, in his word by his grace and by his power. But that's how he measures obedience and maturity is by what we do, not just what we say. It's very important that we understand that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, may you find us with hearts that are just like these Israelites that completely turned over to you in surrender and commitment. We pray, Lord, that you would use our, our lives, Lord, for your purposes, Lord, and we, we would be separate, and we would be set apart for you, that we wouldn't have fellowship with darkness, and I pray for anybody here, Lord, that is struggling, that you would encourage them, help them to see the error of their ways, and to repent, and turn to you, and surrender their lives to you in, this, in these areas, and not live defeated, and not live in disobedience to you, Lord. We know, God, that you discipline us because you love us, but we also know that so often all that discipline is not necessary when we could just repent. 
So I just pray, Lord, that you would um, help us now to repent of everything that we need to repent of, that we would have a clean slate before you, Father, and that we would live a life that's pleasing to you. Thank you that you know we're not going to live perfect, but we want to continue to grow and, and grow and grow in maturity, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that individually, collectively of a church, as a church, that we would grow in maturity, Lord, and have your word be the standard and want to bless your heart by how we live. May everybody here in this room, Lord, and anyone that's not here that's part of our church, may we encourage and exhort one another. Help us to do that, to live lives that are more and more increasingly pleasing to you. And we thank you, Lord, that we get to live a different kind of life. Only because of you, only because of you we can, Lord, and we recognize that publicly. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.